How do you sort out the so-called jargon from real-world practices that work? Do the members of your organization find some business advice utterly confusing? Welcome to the 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holzman. In this program, we set the record straight and in terms that people at any level of business and technology can understand. Now, here is your host, Sam Holzman. Welcome to this episode of the 2020s Enterprise. I'm Sam Holzman, your host, and uh, we're going to be discussing the concepts of enterprise architecture today. And uh, this is an extension of a episode that I did a while ago called Enabling Business Strategy in the Hyper-Competitive Digital World. I know that's a mouthful <laughs> that's there. But in that episode, we talked about what the concept of strategy actually is. Not in an insulting way, hopefully, but just to focus on that word, strategy. It's more than just implementing new technologies, and that's one of the things we wanted to emphasize uh, in that episode because we hear so much about digital transformation and things like that. That's only one small part of it. It is also process. It is also culture. It's organizational change. There's lots of different components to that. And one of the things that I mentioned was the concept of enterprise architecture as the enabler of an organization's business strategy. This is a time-tested technique that's been around since 1966. However, what's happened recently is that one of the great things about the Internet, of course, that everybody knows is that anybody can write anything about anything. And one of the problems with the Internet is anybody can write anything about anything. And when it comes to enterprise architecture, if you look up uh, that term in Google, you'll find 811 million search entries for that term enterprise architecture. That's not really helpful in any way. And one of the things we have to recognize about Google, and this is a, a positioning statement for me, and I know it sounds like a critique, it is actually not a search engine. It's actually a popularity list tool engine. It's based on popularity. And as all of us know, and I use Google a lot, and we advertise on Google, things like that. Hopefully, they're, they're a great partner of ours there. But we also understand its limitations. And so the correct information may be entry 800 and 10 million, and nobody in general will look past a few pages on Google, if not only the first page. So in this episode of the enterprise architecture definition that I want to talk about, I want to give you some understanding so that you don't have to go searching through 811 million records to find what it is. We're trying to bring some method to the madness that is actually out there about enterprise architecture. And we'll briefly trace its roots back to 1966, provide you a definition of enterprise architecture, and that's going to be coming up in just a minute, discuss the requirements for addressing enterprise change velocity. That's what it's about. In this digital world, handcrafting solutions just aren't going to keep up. Yet what we have to recognize, there are things out there that have been used before and we can latch onto those things again to make an agile enterprise environment. Not agile technology alone, but what you want is an agile enterprise environment that's there. And that concept is real enterprise architecture, 
which is the baseline for addressing, leading, and managing change. This concept of real enterprise architecture is the enabler of business strategy. Now, if you're not in a business itself, you may substitute the term enabler of mission strategy. Or the enabler, if you're a religious institution or a charitable institution, enabler of that mission. So it's not just about business strategy. It's the strategy your organization has to achieve its objective. And in this hyper-competitive digital world, it's even more important. Building computer systems should be referred to, if you're talking about architecture, as EITA, Enterprise Information Technology Architecture. It is different. Unfortunately, a lot of people out there that believe they're practicing enterprise architecture are actually practicing EITA for a couple of reasons. Number one, they don't recognize what they're doing in the face of decades of history. And it's not that EITA is wrong, but it's different. And number two, we suggest with a bit of humor that the concepts of enterprise architecture, real enterprise architecture, have been hijacked by the information technology community a little bit. So what are we talking about here when it comes to enterprise architecture? So I'm going to give you a definition of what this is. Enterprise architecture is explicitly representing an organization's desired state and as-is state. Let's take that part of the sentence apart. Enterprise architecture is explicitly representing an organization's desired state and as-is state. The first word I want to emphasize is the word explicit. Explicit representations. And those representations nowadays have to be understood by business professionals, not technology professionals, business professionals, in less than 90 seconds. Why 90 seconds? Because most of us know in this world of digitization, people's patience is probably less than 90 seconds that's there. So the phrase that we use is these representations need to be human consumable. Human consumable. So that's where that 90 seconds comes from. Human consumable representations. And there is a tremendous amount of research about what our minds as human beings can understand when it comes to complexity, which is very different than a computer compiler. The people that are practicing this have to recognize who the audience is. The audience is human beings, not a computer compiler yet. Let's continue on. Enterprise architecture is explicitly representing an organization. An organization, that word is actually just a boundary condition. Anything inside of that boundary can be integrated. Anything outside of that boundary needs to be interfaced. Not one right and one wrong, but very different. So I'm going to give you some physical analogies. If you have an absolutely beautiful architected and implemented kitchen and a beautifully architected and implemented dining room, and somebody says to you, geez, 
you know, I forgot to tell you. Uh, we really have to get directly from the kitchen to the dining room and not through the hallway to make sure that we don't dribble anything on the floor. There will be in the physical world scrap and rework, even though the two things were architected because the boundary conditions have changed. You may have to knock down some walls. You may have to move some pipes, et cetera, et cetera. So what we have to recognize is the word integration and interfacing. And when we change the boundary conditions, there will be scrap and rework. And this is true for software as well as hardware, as well as the physical world. There is nothing inherent about computer systems that makes them more, quote, flexible or agile than things in the physical world. They're implementations. Implementations are implementations. And architecture is architecture is architecture. So let's see where we are so far. Enterprise architecture explicitly representing an organization's desired state and as is state. This is massively important. We start with the desired state, not the as is state. When we're looking at a business or an enterprise or a mission, what do you want to achieve? Well, we sometimes hear, well, we don't know what we want to achieve, but let's just start doing things. Sorry for that. Nonsense. Just think about building a 100-story building. I just told you what the end objective is. You think you can go to an architect or a builder and say, well, why don't you start the building something? Go get some bricks and uh, uh, hammers and nails and chisels and, and, and two-by-fours and some windows and just start building stuff, and I'll tell you when we're done, when we get there. You can't do that. Yet there's a belief that technology is different, that some magical and mystical thing can occur to make this pain go away of not knowing what the end state is. You cannot iterate to it. You cannot take a hundred log cabins and stack them on top of each other to build a hundred story building. You cannot take a hundred copies of Quicken, and I'm not picking on Quicken by any means or QuickBooks or whatever this thing is, and quote, stack them on top of each other, bring them in your organization, and have an integrated financial system. I know what some technologists will say. Well, it's not scalable. Well, what does that mean? And no, it's different. A hundred stories different building is different than a one story building. An integrated financial system is very different than an individual thing. It's not just the functionality. It starts at the root level. Going to the physical analogy, you got to figure out that if you're building a hundred story building, you got to dig a 40 foot hole with big, big concrete pillars. That's what you have to start with. You can't iterate to that that's there. So the desired state is important for two things. One is to loosen people's mind a bit as to where they want to achieve things. And this again comes back to the human condition. And I strongly suggest for the technologists that are listening to me that they start looking a little bit at the soft skills required to understand your customers. This is going to be very valuable because there's a lot of things that we can learn about the human condition and how they can absorb this stuff rather than coming up with a bobblehead nod. Yeah, I agree because I I just give up. I don't understand this. And you'll find some of these things being very important that's there. So starting with a desired state is an imperative. Now, if the desired state is shallow, that should tell us something right away. Like, don't start spending money on implementation. 
until you figure out where do you want to go because you could be spending a lot of resources. And this comes into play from the standpoint of who does architecture, and we'll discuss that in just a moment. So let's continue on here. Enterprise architecture is explicitly representing an organization's desired state and as-is state, and we do need the as-is state so that we can figure out what direction we're going in. And this is a silly physics uh, example here. In order to go from A to B, you got to know where A is, you got to know where B is, and we can draw a line in between it. Just one state won't get us there. Now, how are we going to do this? How are we going to represent this through a set of independent, non-redundant artifacts? Fancy phrase, independent, non-redundant artifacts. Another way to say it, with a little bit of more science possibly, mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive. Let me say it once again a little bit differently than that. What is the minimum set of things that we need to understand virtually anything that humankind has tried to understand? That's a big statement, Sam. Yeah, but it's true. What is the minimum set? What is not the maximum? We can do anything when it comes to the maximum that's there. What is the minimum set of things? You know what it is? Something that you probably recognize right away. What, how, where, who, when, and why. And we'll discuss this a little bit more. Okay. The second thing we need to represent is how these things interact with each other. For example, what processes do you need to achieve the goals of your organization? What skills do you need to perform the processes? What data do you need to perform the processes? What locations are of interest to you and where are those skills? So there's an interaction between skills and location and skills and goals and skills and processes. What are the events that you have to react to? One of the most important artifacts that unfortunately a lot of organizations miss. So the what, how, where, who, when, and why become very, very important to us because those are the six elements that we need to understand about anything. So where are we so far? Enterprise architecture is explicitly representing an organization's desired state and as-is state through a series of independent, non-redundant artifacts. Once again, a different way to say that is mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive. There's no redundancy, no waste. And the second set of representations we need is how these artifacts interrelate with each other. What's the binding that's going on? Now, a lot of enterprise architecture definitions stop there. We're about halfway done with the definition. And the next thing we need to do is sort of the punchline. These are all means to an end. Means to an end. What's the end here? Developing a set of prioritized, aligned, and there's lots of terms here, capabilities or projects needed to meet the organization's goals. That's the end objective. Now, if somebody says to me, I need to install a new email system, that's a declarative. Now, you can technology architect that, but it's not an enterprise architect. It's a different thing. So from these understandings, we are going to develop a series of 
you like the word capabilities, that would be great. Series of projects, programs, systems, focus areas, activities. The end state is what the organization is going to do to essentially achieve its objective. And then the other important thing is the concepts of communication. And there are numerous people that we're going to have to talk to with different levels of understanding. Business executives, technology executives, business stakeholders, possibly customers, possibly uh, other organizational activities that are outside of our purview, regulators, those types of things. Lots of different folks. And the end objective is to advance the organization from its as-is state to its desired state. And that's the approach that we're going to be taking as we look through this. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back from the break, we'll elaborate once again on this definition and move forward. See you back in just a few minutes. Is your organization in the internet age when those around you are moving into the information age? Are your hallway conversations filled with words and phrases like blockchain, AI, VR, cloud computing, and micro this and that? Are you interested in bringing some method to the madness? Then talk to us. Through years of consulting with clients all over the world, the Pinnacle Business Group and Architecture's Center of Excellence have developed an understanding of what makes a consultant-client relationship work. And this understanding comes to every engagement. The Pinnacle Business Group assists organizations in solving their business and system challenges with its unique, proven approaches, bringing teams of business and system personnel together to jointly define business and system requirements. The teams are led through a series of facilitated activities to provide innovative solutions to their business and system challenges. We look forward to hearing from you. Visit PinnacleBusinessGroup.com. You are listening to The 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holtzman. We welcome questions and comments about the program via email to sam at eacoe.org. That's sam at eacoe.org. Now, back to The 2020s Enterprise. Welcome back. We are talking about the concepts of enterprise architecture, what it is and what it's not and how it essentially enables our business strategy. Our first segment, we went through in detail the definition, and I want to recap this definition for you. Enterprise architecture is explicitly representing an organization's desired state and as a state through a set of independent, non-redundant artifacts, defining how these artifacts relate with each other, And from that, developing a set of prioritized, aligned capabilities and projects needed to meet the organization's goals, communicating this understanding to various stakeholders, and the end objective being advancing the organization from its as-is state to its desired state. That's the definition that we use of enterprise architecture. You don't even see the word technology in there because it's not about technology yet. It's building a business roadmap that enables business strategy. And the other terms we like to use 
in a traceable and transparent manner. Any stakeholder should be able to see how this thing was developed, how these projects were initiated. Emphasis again, it's not a series of declarative. Somebody sits around the table and says, we need to do this, we got to install this, we got to do this. Those are declaratives. By the way, they may align with the business strategy, but we don't know that. I think that's one of the issues we see if you look at maintenance budgets and technologies and, and organizations. It's because of this sort of scattered approach to not thinking about the end objective is the enablement of business strategy. That has to be in our minds, anything that we're doing. And what's the most fastest path to get there, direct path to get there, to enable the business to do its work? Another possible confusion with this definition is the word enterprise itself. And there's lots of discussion about that word, but it's, it's kind of simple. It, again, is a roles and responsibilities. It's a boundary condition. And anything inside of that boundary condition can be integrated. Anything outside of that boundary will be interfaced. Not right and wrong, but different. So as you look at this, you can see that you can build an architecture and define your enterprise multiple ways. And one of the most important things is to define what you're trying to actually enable. Is it using some terms that may be more comfortable? Is it a project, a program, a division, a department, the whole enterprise, the whole enterprise and your partners, the whole enterprise and your partners and your customers, the whole enterprise and your partners and your customers and the government regulatory agencies? Where is the boundary condition and where is the interfaces and where is the integration? And the reason for this is the word integration versus interfacing. There is no right and wrong definition, but this is very, very important. So we can see how these pieces sort of fit together. Now let's take a look at a moment at a historical perspective here. And this is kind of important. This is kind of important. The reason for studying history is to make sure that you minimize doing the same wrong things again. And unfortunately, this is what we're seeing a lot of in enterprise architecture today. The roots of this goes back many, many years to 1966. And the roots of this could go back to a gentleman named P. Dwayne Dewey Walker. And Mr. Walker worked for IBM. And in 1966, Mr. Walker was named the manager of information systems planning at IBM's headquarters. And a year later, he became the first manager of information systems architecture. This is the first time that we were able to recognize or understand the word architecture in the relationship to anything in enterprises and business and technology, 1967. We have to recognize that the study of enterprises itself is very, very young. From what we can tell, 1954, Peter Drucker, The Practice of Management, was the first time anybody sort of sat down and said, what is this thing called an enterprise or a business or a collection of people that have a mission they're trying to accomplish? So this study is very young. People say, well, 1954, that's a long time ago. No, that's a heartbeat in time 
when it comes to understanding things. Somehow, if you are privileged to go to Giza, Egypt, outside of Cairo, and you look at the Great Pyramids there, as an engineer, you may say, how'd they do that? (laughs) This stuff has been around for a long time, architecting, building things that are complex that's there. So let's take a little bit more look at Mr. Dewey for a moment. I never had the privilege of working with him in detail, but I understood his thoughts because there's a lot of writings that he had out there. And one of the things that you can think about in 1967 is that nobody had done this before. And one of the great things about IBM and a lot of other companies is they think before they do. You think before you do. That's something that we need to think about a little bit more, I think. And Mr. Walker had nothing as a baseline. His brilliance was to figure out that he needed to know two things. One is, jokingly here, if I tripped over the hallway on this thing called an architecture, what would it look like? And the phrase that I like to use is a frame of reference. What is this thing going to look like, a frame of reference? And the second thing that he thought about is, if I could figure out what this thing should look like, how do I actually do it? A methodology or a process, whatever you want to think about. That fundamental thing is still confusing out there in the enterprise architecture world. We see mixing there. Do we understood they were different? This is a fundamental understanding that is still not there in the world of enterprise architecture. And that's why it isn't really a profession yet. We don't have a baseline yet. People can call themselves architects and there is no worldwide standard. I don't care what the internet says and even our own organization that does certification for enterprise architecture, we say very humbly, there ain't one. There should be. There ain't one. There is no standard. There's people that self-declare. You stand up on a chair and say, yes, I am the standard. Any questions? Well, yeah. What's your base? So when you look at this, we start looking back in history here and seeing some of the fundamentals. And everything I'm talking about here is a fundamental truism in professions outside of enterprise architecture and technology. And you can look at it and you can trace this if you don't believe what I'm saying. There's no issue at all. So the first things that Dewey realized was he had to figure out what this thing was going to look like, a frame of reference, and then figure out how to do it. IBM had many resources at the time and still does, of course, and brilliant, brilliant, brilliant people that Dewey called in to help him out. When it comes to looking at what something looks like, in other words, the concept of a frame of reference, he actually sought out people that were ontologists, ontological professionals that could figure out structures. And he had two brilliant ontologists that he called on, and many other folks, but these two are sort of stand out from the work that Mr. Dewey Walker did with his department. And those two people that were helping 
figure out what this thing was going to look like, happened to have the first name of John. One was John Soa, and the other was John Zachman. And some of you may be familiar with Mr. Zachman's work, a brilliant ontologist that has brought so much understanding to enterprise architecture. But just like anybody else in, in this field of technology right now, there's as many people that say, ah, John, forget that. You know, he's old. He came from IBM. And I'm old, by the way, too. <laughs> I didn't come from IBM. Nothing to do with age. It has to do with not invented here. Well, we've got to roll our own frame of reference. Can you imagine for a moment you and I speaking right now and not knowing what that frame of reference is? By the way, what is the frame of reference I'm using right now? Using an analogy? The 26 letters of the English alphabet. That's the frame of reference. The second thing that Dewey had to figure out is how to do this. Methodology, process, a guide on how to get from A to B, essentially, that's there. And within IBM, he reached out to some colleagues, essentially, that, that were there, and uh, two that worked on it that are quite famous in this, in this world was Dr. James Martin, who's based in England, and Mr. Clive Finkelstein, based in Perth, Australia. Two people that were working on these concepts early on of process methodology. Now, there was a bit of disintegration at the time. There wasn't a, if I can use the phrase, well, John and John figured out what it was supposed to look like, and then Clive and Jim sort of built a process around it. There was sort of concurrent work going on because people weren't really sure about what things were. And as far as, you know, the frame of reference, it was, it was published uh, by John Zachman when he was at IBM about a decade or two after they started working on this thing. So it wasn't this instantaneous thing that came out there that says, oh, we got, we got the answer. Here's the answer. And at the same time, of course, methodologies, processes were evolving also. So it wasn't a pure engineering thought process at the time that was there, it sort of evolved together. And there was a little bit of give and take on the, on, on, on the two sides that were there. Now, one of the most influential things outside of the frame of reference was also some independent work that uh, Dr. Jim Martin did, Dr. James Martin did. And he published a book uh, here in the US, it was a three volume set called Information Engineering bringing engineering discipline to the world of information systems, information engineering. And this was something that was really influential that was there, information engineering. Now, coming back to Dewey for a moment, historically on enterprise architecture, and it wasn't called enterprise architecture those days, not yet. He oversaw many of the developments of tools for IBM. And in 1970, this almost sounds like a side note here. Dewey was commissioned to establish a national marketing approach for IBM. What the heck does marketing have to do with enterprise architecture? Well, those clever people at IBM figured out that if I can use a physical analogy, if I had your blueprint, I could sell into that. I could say, hey, hey, Sam, you need to... Uh, four dozen two-by-fours. You need six windows. You actually need four, more than four two-by-fours. 
You need doors and windows. And oh, by the way, we have the staff here with the skills to be able to help you out. So the key to this, the end product, was a series of descriptive representations that then could be enabled. And IBM, of course, during those days, the phrase that was used was, if you bought from IBM, you never get fired. Well, that phrase translated into essentially the work that Dewey and his team were doing. They would build the blueprints for your organization, and then there would be the general contractor, if I could use that phrase, that enabled that. And they had both those skills. They had the architectural skills, and they had the general contracting skills that was there. And that resulted in a highly successful program for IBM that was called at the time Business Systems Planning, BSP which are the roots of all of this. The end objective is a series of blueprints, if I can use that phrase, a guidance as to what to do in an integrated manner that was there. And just as a side note, Dewey received uh, an Outstanding Contribution Award in 1973 when this was published. Now, our personal roots go back to 1972. That's when we actually began looking at this. And not all of this information was there at our disposal at the time because my background was engineering and I sort of fell into the world of technology. And I was a little surprised in those early days as to what I saw as a lack of structure. I'm going to use the word discipline, but not sort of rigor discipline, but What's the process that you're supposed to be using to actually figure out what the business people want? And my role was the implementation of that. And I realized that engineering is different than manufacturing. The phrase that we use in architecture is that architecture is different than implementation. And one further step is that the people working on this stuff are also different. Architects have different skills. General contractors have different skills. Plumbers, electricians, those types of people. Nothing wrong with it. We need them, like we do in technology, to enable the things that we're architecting. And so what we saw there was this evolution. So enterprise architecture is the key to enabling business strategy. And you can sort of see where we are in its maturing. And when we come back from our break, we're going to chat about what is it? Why do it? So we'll see you back here in just a few minutes. You're listening to Sam Holzman on the 2020s Enterprise. We're talking about enterprise architecture. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you. Is your organization in the internet age when those around you are moving into the information age? Are your hallway conversations filled with words and phrases like blockchain, AI, VR, cloud computing, and micro this and that? Are you interested in bringing some method to the madness? Then talk to us. 
Through years of consulting with clients all over the world, the Pinnacle Business Group and Architecture's Center of Excellence have developed an understanding of what makes a consultant-client relationship work. And this understanding comes to every engagement. The Pinnacle Business Group assists organizations in solving their business and system challenges with its unique, proven approaches, bringing teams of business and system personnel together to jointly define business and system requirements. The teams are led through a series of facilitated activities to provide innovative solutions to their business and system challenges. We look forward to hearing from you. Visit PinnacleBusinessGroup.com. You are listening to The 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holtzman. We welcome questions and comments about the program via email to sam at eacoe.org. That's sam at eacoe.org. Now, back to The 2020s Enterprise. You're listening to The 2020s Enterprise. I'm Sam Holtzman, and we're talking about the the concept of enterprise architecture. So once again, what is it? Enterprise architecture is explicitly representing an organization's desired state and as-is state through a set of independent, non-redundant artifacts, defining how these artifacts interrelate with each other, developing from that a set of prioritized aligned capabilities, projects, programs, initiatives needed to meet the organization's goals, communicating that to various stakeholders, and advancing the organization from its as-is state to its desired state. And why would you want to do this? It has to do with a phrase that is so common in the literature right now, and yet we, we look at it and say, well, how do we do this? And that's the concept of complexity and change. You need a baseline for addressing and managing change when things are complex. That's when these concepts of architecture become important. And people say, well, we don't have time. We've got to get the code out the door. We've got to get the solution out the door. We'll fix it later. I won't comment on that. <laughs> Basically, it's a very dangerous approach. And I think we're seeing that. One of the indicators could be the maintenance budgets in your organization for technologies that are out there. And if that isn't enough, just look at the increased hacking that is going on on a virtually minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour daily basis. It is out of control. And that is squarely due to the vulnerabilities that are built because of the practices that we have in enabling technology. Yes, it's easy to point fingers at people that are the evildoers, but the evildoers can only do evil if there are these vulnerabilities. And our software practices, because we don't have real enterprise architecture, are in its infancy. And this is what we have to recognize. It's easy to point fingers at the culprits, but that's only the symptom. What's the cause? And if you hear the term vulnerabilities, or they hear the word tweaks, or you hear the word errors, or you heard the word hacking, it fundamentally has to do with the absolutely primitive approaches that most organizations, unfortunately, are taking to build these solutions that are very, very complex. 
And if you look historically at the word complexity, there is one gating factor that addresses this, and that is architecture. When things get complex, more than a couple of people involved, you got to write things down. It's that fundamental. If you're building log cabins, you may not have to write a lot of things down. You need to write things down when you're building and changing a 100-story building. There is no doubt about that. And the things that we're building in our enterprises are like 100-story buildings. Most of the listeners to this program aren't building log cabins or sheds in their backyards. They're building massively complex things that are out there. If you're building a balsam model wood airplane, you may not need a lot of, to write a lot of things down. But when you're building or changing an aircraft or a shuttle or a cruise liner or any other thing that is that complex, you got to write things down. But there's always a but. <laughs> and the but is what you write down, how you write it down, and how you build it affects the ability to change something. There's nothing inherent about a piece of technology, a piece of software, a piece of hardware that makes it more flexible or agile or something else. You have to engineer for these changes. It's an engineering design objective. It's not just a function of technology. You engineer in the physical world when it comes to automobiles for reliability. You engineer for fuel economy. You engineer for crashworthiness. You engineer for repairability. All of these are engineering design objectives. They're not just a function of technology. These things have to be engineered in. So adding a new piece of software or a new programming language or a new whatever isn't going to get us there. And this is what we're trying to emphasize. Now, sometimes I seem like I'm pleading with people, and I apologize for that. It's just having a sit back for a moment and think about thousands of years of history and how people outside of IT have addressed complexity and change. And we're going to come to the conclusion, you will come to the conclusion, that you need real enterprise architecture. Not technology planning, but there. And architecture is about addressing complexity and change. Real architecture is about that. And if any of you had the privilege, pleasure, or frustration in building a house, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go to an architect. You don't go to a general contractor. Isn't that fascinating? You go to an architect. And they put together a series of blueprints. And those blueprints, some of those representations are understandable by you. And some of those uh, representations are understandable by the general contractor. And even something as simple as a house has a scroll of drawings to understand it. And it's broken up into pieces so that people can understand each element. There's the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning drawing. There's the plumbing drawing. There's the electrical drawing. Each one of these elements is there. Because if you try to mush all the stuff together, that's a technical term, try to mush all that stuff together, you can't see the house. And we see that same thing in enterprise architecture. Enterprises and businesses are complex. There's not going to be one representation that will address all of those needs. 
So architecture is about addressing complexity and change. Now, flexibility of an enterprise, a business, the new term that a lot of times people use is agility, historically comes from two things. Architecture and the concept of assemble to order. And that's a concept we see in manufacturing. And just as a side note, an example of assemble to order would be a salad bar. You can picture a salad bar for a moment. Let's say you have 16 elements on there. You've got uh, romaine lettuce, you have tomatoes, you have radishes, you have garbanzo beans, you have onions and chicken and everything else. It doesn't matter what's on there. 16 individual elements. How many different salads can you make? I think the number is about 23 million. That's the power of this concept of assemble to order. Well, that's not just an architecture element. I want to stress again, an agile business, an agile enterprise requires architecture and the enablement of that business strategy through the concepts of assembling to order. In a different episode of the 2020s Enterprise, I described the three phases, which is the most mature phase that's out there. Here we're talking about the concepts of architecture that's there. So once again, flexibility, agility, whatever term you're comfortable with, comes from two things. Architecture and assemble-to-order implementation projects. And unfortunately, and I say this humbly, it's difficult to believe that agility will ever come from handcrafting things smaller and faster. This is what we have to start recognizing. This concept of smaller and faster handcrafting will not get us there. It's possibly better than what we're doing today, but we're just not going to be, be able to keep up with the mission requirements, the mission values the business strategy changes, the competitive environment, something fundamental needs to be changing. And by the way, as I'm speaking to you today, there are people that are figuring this out. This is not mysterious anymore, but there's so much noise out there. Once again, the internet is great, but it also has this problem of noise. And most of us have a difficult time on a daily basis to figure out where the noise is and where it isn't. And hopefully, this broadcast, amongst others, is bringing some understanding about what that is. So the concept of an agile enterprise is the ability to address complexity and change. The ability to address complexity and change. And this is what enterprise architecture is all about. It's recognizing that the Business change and representation of that business change should come before the change itself. The second thing that real enterprise architecture understands is that there are different skills. And in the physical world, there's most of the time different companies. There are organizations that do architecture. And there are organizations that do implementation. And 
Another term for implementation would be general contractors. Even that concept is a bit foreign to most organizations today. And the architect is actually the voice of the customer. And the architect doesn't go away when the drawings are built. The architect is looking or seeing as things are being built, there may be changes required in the architecture. Those are called running changes. Because the abstractions that are used in architecture aren't the same as reality, no matter how good they are. So as the end thing is being built, whatever it is, you may need to go back to the architecture to make some changes that we see going on there. Now, when it comes to architecture for enterprises or businesses or organizations or missions, I want to come back to the six elements that we need to understand. And the easiest way to remember this is something that has been around for quite some time. The phrase is what, how, where, who, when, and why. Those are six independent, non-redundant elements. And from a standpoint of enterprise architecture, let me provide you with a little bit more guidance as to what those are. The whys in our world of architecture are the strategies and goals. The hows, when we talk about hows in the what, how, where, who, what, and why, are the processes and activities. The what's are the materials and things, the data, if you like that term, that we need in the organization that's there. The who element are the roles and responsibilities. Another term may be skills that are there. The where are the locations and geographies. Layout. How are things laid out? And the when are the events and triggers. Why strategies and goals. How processes and activities. What materials and things or data. Who roles and responsibilities and skills. Where locations and geography. And finally, when events and triggers. I just want to, for a moment here, talk about the last element I talked about, events and triggers. This, unfortunately, in the world of business and enterprises and real enterprise architecture is woefully inadequately represented in most organizations. And one of the big reasons is people don't recognize those six elements, which is a real problem. Organizations, once they get into real enterprise architecture, recognize that they're actually event-driven and not process-driven. Events trigger processes. Now, what would be an example of an event? I'm based in Michigan, and let me give you an example of an event, and this is not me, of course. If it's January, and I'm in Michigan, and I sell bathing suits, and I got a 1,000 bathing suits in my warehouse, by the way, that's not a good thing to sell in Michigan in January. So let me say it again. If it's January, and I'm in Michigan, and I got a 1,000 bathing suits in my warehouse, then send my good customers a coupon for 20% off. That's one event, and there's a whole series of actions or processes and objectives and goals that are met by that. I'm going to just change that event a little bit. If it's January and I'm in Michigan, and i got a 1,000 bathing suits in my warehouse, and i got an okay customer, an okay customer is somebody that owes me less than $200 for 30 days, send them a coupon for 10% off. 
And there's a different business reaction, different objective, different goal, different strategy that may occur. Let me give you a third. If it's January and I'm in Michigan and I got a thousand bathing suits in my warehouse and I got a bad customer, bad customer, somebody owes me more than a hundred dollars, more than five hundred dollars for thirty days, set them a notice of collection. You now start seeing how important this concept of event is. That's what's driving the enterprise to achieve its goals. So just imagine right now if that representation is implicit in the organization. All six of these elements are mandatory. There's no optionality. And if you don't write them down, it doesn't mean they're not there. It means that you're making guesses about them. And that's why there's such chaos going on in most organizations when it comes to technology and why the technology organization is always behind, always behind what the business is trying to achieve. It's just a fact. It's uncomfortable. And I'm a technologist. I'm speaking as a technologist. Now, I'm speaking also as a real enterprise architect, but I understand what that is. I'm there. I'm not somebody that's fictitious that's out there. I look at this every day. So what we tried to bring to you today is an understanding of what we refer to as real enterprise architecture. Enterprise architecture is explicitly representing an organization's desired state and as-is state through a set of independent, non-redundant artifacts, defining how these artifacts relate with each other, developing a set of prioritized aligned capabilities and projects and initiatives needed to move the organization to meet its organizational goals, communicating this understanding to stakeholders, and the objective is advancing the organization from its as-is state to its desired state. And in an upcoming episode of the 2020s Enterprise, we're actually going to go through in a bit more understanding and detail the phases that we would suggest that you would carry out to actually perform an enterprise architecture. I hope this broadcast brought some clarity to the concept of enabling business strategy through enterprise architecture. You've been listening to Sam Holzman, myself. Thank you for listening. This is the 2020s Enterprise. We'll see you next time.